This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we're coming to you today from Woburn, Mass., where we're at Crime Bake. Yeah, we're at Crime Bake, but we're sorry we're not going to interview authors this no, time. No, like we did, and you can look at last year's if you... I don't know what number, but it was around this time of year, so... Yep. And you know, we're almost coming up to our second year anniversary. I know, because we first were prompted to do this at Crime Bake two years ago when the podcasters of Crime Writers On did a panel and did a live show from there, and they yes. interviewed me. Yes, they did. Uh, so, uh, shut that. And do we're you... having a good time, we should say that. Yes, we are having a very it's good a time. It's a Mystery Writers Conference Yes, Yearly. even though I'm not a writer. But you're a fan. Well, it's a crime writer's conference. Right, crime writers. I know yes. there's a big distinction, though. Well, there's true crime people here, too, right? Or no? Yeah, I think there are. Yeah. Before we get going, we have some updates. Yes. I'll do mine because they're fast. All right. What are you? Okay, yours? well, no, I have a correction. In our Carl Draga mm-hmm. episode 52, I was talking about the book about him in the evil day, and there were a lot of old, oldie-timey photos from 1997, and I said I thought... One of the photos that showed a bunch of reporters at a press conference was a young Kevin Flynn when he worked for Channel 9 and my friend Lorna Calhoun, who covered it for the union leader, said no, that was Andy Hirschberger, another Channel 9 reporter. It all blurs in, but I wanted to correct that. Did she actually listen to our podcast? I don't know if she has or not. How else would she have corrected you? I showed her the photo in the book. Well, I she didn't. Because I thought they had used a photo of hers uh, in the book, and okay. I must have seen it somewhere else. It's a long story. Okay. And my update is our last episode, episode 56, the Ouija board episode. I also did a main mini about yes. George Stanley, the guy whose property was put on Craigslist. Mm-hmm. There's no update on him from everybody going and taking all his stuff, and you can listen to that. But he did was seeking help from a fellow running for DA in his county, Androscoggin County, Seth Carey, who had a number of sexual assault convictions against, not convictions, complaints against him and stuff. And I just want to update that, as we predicted, Seth Carey didn't win that election. The incumbent Andy Robinson, DA of Androscoggin, Oxford, and Franklin Counties in Maine. Won the election. No, but again, no update on George Stanley at all. And you know who else used to be DA of those counties? Our new governor, Janet Janet Mills. Mills. Yes. Who we saw speak at Crime Wave. Not to be confused with Crime Bake. Almost a year and a half ago. She's great. Yeah, I like Janet. Well, I have an update too. Oh, good. The one that keeps giving us updates. Yep. Annie Dukin. Um, it's episode 29. She was a chemist for the state of Massachusetts in the Boston area who faked a bunch of test results in order to help the prosecution on a bunch of cases. That's the short version of it. You can listen to episode 29 if you want to know all the details. But along with her, around the same time in western Massachusetts, there was a, a chemist that was doing the same thing for different reasons, but also faking drug cases. So the two of them, there was a lawsuit against the state and all about 40,000 convictions were thrown out. The Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has has ordered the return. There were two cases. I don't know if they were test cases or what, but it was $8,000 worth of fines. And they also, with this ruling, ruled that every single case that was dismissed, their fines have to be repaid. Wow. So it's going to be millions of dollars. Wow. So this is a Annie. case that just keeps on giving back to the state of Massachusetts. So all you prosecutors that were so 
gung-ho about her always getting the results you want maybe maybe you need to stop and think about what exactly is happening when when right that something that seems a little too good to be true in fact maybe people need to focus more on accurate evidence rather than getting a result which all segues into our topic yes, it today. Does segue. Now, I want to say originally, if you listened to our last episode, we were going to do something else. Yeah, you teased nice. about it too. I did. I just didn't have time. But we decided, and we can change our minds because we're women. It's a woman's prerogative. So yeah, we ended up. We're going to do something a little different today, kind of similar to what we did with JonBenet Ramsey. The TV specials. The TV specials yeah. almost two years ago. That we watched season two of Making a Murderer. Yes, and then we rewatch did. season one. And we know some other podcasts have talked about it. I haven't listened to any of them. Okay. Just, I don't care what other people say. I don't either, but I just want people to know that we decided to do this and we're not just... You guys know us anyway. We're not bandwagon jumpers. Why do you even have to say that? I, I know I don't. You know what? By saying that we're bandwagon jumpers, you're just, you're just implying... Not. I know, but that we're not. You're just implying I'm that we're I'm putting that thought into yes. people's heads. I'm manipulating just, their thoughts. And we're going to do it a little differently. We're going to base... Our discussion on our negative Nellie's watching rating system with the distinction that we're going to talk about the documentaries the way we usually use that system and take away points for different elements. But we're also going to talk about the case using that system because we just felt we had to frame our discussion some way so we're not here for eight hours. Because it's just 20 gonna, hours of television, um, of, of show. And obviously we wouldn't be taking away points for the case itself, but it's a way for us to talk about different aspects of the case in a structured way so we're not just all over the place. And if you're not familiar with our rating system, we have like 10 things. We start with a 10. Right, and things can get, either a TV show or a book or whatever can get points taken away for certain things that bug us. Yes. And again, when we talk about the case in these things, it's separate from talking about the documentary, but it's just a way to talk about the case. Yes. And we don't take away points because it's... We're not taking away points for stuff that we think that the people the documentary is about did. But if there are things about the documentary that we are critiquing, we will. Right. So we'll make that clear as right. we go along. Right. What we'll do is, as we go to each thing, we'll just talk about the documentary first. Okay. And, and how and our, if we're going to take away a point or not. And, we'll say it then. And then we'll get into how we feel about the case. And I also want to say it's a default, so we don't have to keep saying it. Just because we may feel there was police corruption, that the wrong people were convicted or anything else, doesn't mean we don't have sympathy for the victim or her family. And we'll get into it more later, that there's a narrative that you either, it's like a football game or something, you either have to think Stephen Avery and Brenda Dassey are guilty, or if you think that there was any wrongdoing, or don't think they're guilty, or say anything positive about them at all, somehow it's stomping all over the memory of Teresa Halbach, the victim, and causing more pain to her family. And like I said, we'll talk about them more later. But our default right now is this: these documentaries are about the justice system yes. and how it can be used or misused. And it's a huge smokescreen to turn everything around to try to guilt shame people into to thinking or feeling if they talk about that, then 
they're heartless bastards. And every, any of you, you don't know me that well, but you know me from this podcast, you know I don't give a shit. I'm going to talk about it. The other thing is, the documentary is about him. It's about Stephen Avery. And then it, it branches off to be about both Stephen and Brendan and the justice system. So it's not like they're ignoring Teresa Halbach. They do talk about her and they do talk about the crime and they do remind us about her often in the in the and, documentary. And kind of but it's not about her. Right. But there are some people who would think it has to be about her and you're not allowed yes, to talk about the other stuff. True. And that's just bullshit. It's bullshit. And that kind of thinking allows corruption to yes, happen. Yes, it does. And it, it allows them to get away with corruption because every time you bring up a question about something, they hit you back with, how dare you right. when this poor young woman has been killed? Right. Instead so of, right. you and have to keep, you have to be objective about it. And Right. And I'll say this now in case I forget to say it later, but people talk about it being about justice for her. And to convict the wrong person is an injustice yes. to a victim and it exploits the victim. It exploits the victim more than anything anyone else is doing. It's cynical, which is a nice word for it. The other thing is when something like this happens, it's not just about this case. It's about our justice system and how it works and how people are manipulated. Not only people involved in the case, but the press and the victim's family is manipulated, and the public is manipulated, and the more that kind of manipulation goes on, the more we're not being watchdogs of our government, and the less our justice system is working. And you may think, well, I'm a good person. I would never get wrongly convicted of a crime. And maybe you are, and maybe you won't, but it's scary it should concern you if people around you, maybe with less money than you or on the wrong side of the tracks or worse history than you have, are getting wrongly convicted of a crime because it erodes the fabric. Well, and the other, well, the other thing is it's an injustice to other victims of the person that might still be free yes. and to other either future victims or past victims. We don't know who killed her. Well, some people think they do, but, the, but as far as I'm concerned, I don't know. Right. And to me, that means that somebody, I don't think it's Stephen Avery. That's my personal opinion. So I believe that there's somebody that did do it. It has not. Really scary is if the police know who did it and were so focused on Stephen Avery that they gave this And I pass. honestly don't think that they know who did it. Because they didn't investigate it. I think so they, they think they know, and I think I think that they've convinced themselves that he is the person that did it. So everything that is how they justify right. everything they so did. So maybe we should just jump right in. Well, the the other thing, I'll just give a quick summary on it, and very quick, oh, yeah. like a few sentences. Stephen Avery, if you haven't ever watched these, well, first of all, we are going to give spoilers, but you, yeah, this you is don't have going to be laden with spoilers. Yes, because we're basically discussing it, not right. reviewing it. But most of you, if you're interested in true crime, have probably watched it. If you haven't. You should. It's on Netflix. But he was arrested in 1985. Yep. yep 1985 for a rape. He was uh, Attempted rape, I'm sorry. An attempted, uh, an assault and attempted rape. He was 23 years old. Police arrested him. 18 years later, he was exonerated by DNA evidence and he got out. Two years. And he had been sentenced to 32 years in prison. He had been prison. sentenced to 32 years in prison. So this was, nine, this was 2005. 
right? 2003. 2003 sorry, he got out. DNA evidence. That's right, DNA evidence. And it's a long, involved story. I'm not going to get into it. We, we'll talk more about it as we go along. And then in 2005. 2005, Teresa Halbach was murdered. She was last seen on the Avery property, which we'll talk more about. The police honed in on him. He was arrested again and convicted of that crime. That, her, her point, the last point she was known to be at. The last obviously. point she was known to be, yes. Right. And we'll talk more about that, too. But that's the short story right. about it. And then the context is that after he got out of prison, after being wrongly convicted, it was obvious that he had been, that there had been some police malfeasance. Yes. And he had been framed. So he was suing the Manitowoc County in Wisconsin mm-hmm. Sheriff's Department. They were being deposed in a case that looked very much like he was going to win yes. because it wasn't a mistake conviction. You have to watch it, but the ev- there was no evidence against him, and they pretty much led the victim. They had evidence for, with somebody and, else. And things came up over the years that showed there was somebody else who was a much more likely perpetrator. The guy himself, even at one point, I think, said something. They had evidence of this awful, brutal serial rapist, unlike Stephen Avery, who wasn't. And... A cop, a deputy sheriff, Andy Coburn, knew about it in 1995, and he was one of the people, and I bring up his name because he plays a big part in this, was one of the people who was alerted in 1995 that there was evidence that could could show Stephen Avery wasn't the one who did it, and he blew it off, basically, yes. and didn't even write a report. And that wasn't why Stephen Avery was released. It was DNA. It that was DNA. Hit. DNA hit. They were running DNA for something else, and, and it, it hit. hit. That was all part of the basis of the lawsuit. Yes, and the, also the state of Wisconsin made a law called the was it called the C- Stephen, Stephen Avery, Avery Act? Act. Yeah, Did I they fit, change the name? They, they wanted may or to. May not have. So he was going to get like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I think. Yes. For that, so. And then he was suing for $36 million He was suing for $36 million, the county, Manitowoc County. Yes. So th- there was reason to target him. And their insurance didn't cover it because police, law enforcement does have insurance for some lawsuits. But when the lawsuit is based, if they lose a lawsuit based on improper behavior by the police, the insurance doesn't cover it. Mm-hmm. So this was going to come out of the county, yes. this $36 million. That's and a it lot wasn't, of fucking, fucking, that's <laughs> a lot of money. It wasn't going well. No, it wasn't. And uh, Teresa Halbach's murder happened within a couple weeks after the deposition. It was within, it was October 31st, 2005. And they were being deposed in they October. They were being deposed. We're going to go through more of the details as we talk about the show, and we're going to talk about both seasons of it. But the um, thing I want to I want to stress is we are not saying that the police killed her. I don't think they did. No. And I don't think Stephen Avery's lawyers thought they did. Nobody thinks that the, Nobody police, thinks the killed police killed her. her. They took advantage of a situation. They did. So we will so do you want to start our Yeah, why don't we start in our first of our 10 negative Nellies watching rating is bad reenactments. And let's talk about the documentary and then mm-hmm. the case. So the documentary they did in the first season First couple episodes have some very brief reenactments. They're brief, and they're basically black and white, fuzzy, photographic image 
a still image. And what it was was Stephen Avery's cousin, Sandra Morris, was being deposed about <laughs> supposedly him threatening her with a gun and also masturbating onto her car, but she was driving by at 40 miles an hour. In the that, middle of the winter. In the middle of the winter. And also she was married to a deputy. She sheriff. was married to a deputy. But the reenactments of that kind of, they don't show him, you know, obviously. No, they show a They show a figure. shadowy figure and they show someone behind the wheel On of a, a car. snowy yeah. road. It's like so. So it wasn't. It, wasn't bad. it didn't bother me. Um, I wouldn't take away any points, and it was the only reenactment. That's the only that one the documentarians yeah. did. And like, if anything, I'd take I'd take points off because it was such a standalone it, thing. But I think it's something they tried out, and then it they may just, have been because they when they started out, they were basically students. Yeah, and that was their first. So, but they didn't do it again, and so no points off for that. Now let's talk about reenactments as part, far as the case goes. And part two, I don't think part one they really did. Nobody Those lawyers did anything. And part two, the woman... Well, let's talk about for a minute what's happened. Stephen was arrested yes. for Teresa Halbach's murder. A lot of the investigation was done by the man, even though it wasn't supposed to be, and they lied and said it wasn't, but it was by the Manitowoc County Yeah, Sheriff the Calumet Department. County that was ne- next door county was supposed to be conducting the investigation. Right, and this is Manitowoc is the county Stephen was suing, and they're the ones who weirdly found all the evidence against him. And, and the funny thing is, even though it was almost 20, it was 20 years later. It was 20 years after but his first case. some of the same cops were Some still. of the same cops were involved. And, and it had winded, wound its way through the legal appellate system with no joy for Stephen, who is at a point where after you lose a certain amount of appeals, you no longer get a lawyer provided for you, and he had state-provided lawyers. And to make a long story short, Catherine Zellner, who a Kathleen. lot of, Kathleen Zellner, who a lot of you may know from other true crime, particularly Ryan Ferguson, the young man who was Some accused of killing the sports writer outside the Missouri newspaper who didn't do it. She has done, I think it's 17... I think at this count now it's 20. 20 wrongful conviction cases. When this was filmed, it was like 17. But she had taken the case. She decided to after watching season one. Well... Someone made her watch Ryan Ferguson did. Oh, that's Ryan Ferguson. Stephen and his cousin had written her letters that she ignored. She She probably gets... No, what she said in this interview I read in the Los Angeles Times is that... She gets a lot of letters, and I'm she looked sure. at the evidence against him, and it seemed like he was guilty. Then Ryan Ferguson texted her and said, you have to watch this, you have to watch this, and she didn't. And he said, at least watch, and this was season one, at least watch episode three, because it's just like something they did with me, only worse. And I can't remember what happened in episode three. But in any case, she said she and her husband ended up watching, like just binge watching the entire series, and she said, I have to take this case, this guy's innocent. Yes. So people think she overdoes it because of she goes all her up. right she's very focused on getting the details right and i don't know why anybody would have a complaint about that but why don't you talk about one of the things she did <laughs> Teresa hobbock's car was i believe a, a rav4 it was a rav4 a certain year not 1999 rav4 so Kathleen Zellner went out and bought a 1995 RAV4. Because some of the evidence against Stephen Avery was found in this car. Yes. Okay, I have a, one of my degrees 
one of my degrees at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, I know. You I have a degree in psychology. I did have to take anyone that has any kind of science background. You have to take scientific methodology. And you know that when you're doing an experiment and you're trying to replicate the experiment, you are supposed to replicate it. So that's why I, I have no problem with her doing that. That is the only way to really know exactly, you know, like there's there was blood splatter testimony, all sorts of things, and she wanted to make sure that she was replicating exactly what might have happened so she could see what the results were. And she does say if she finds stuff against her client, then she will stop representing right. him. She, she starts out believing they're innocent. That's why she takes the case. But if it turns out they're guilty, she will find out that they're guilty. And she points out every single thing she ran by Stephen about what she wanted to do. He said, yeah, do it. Yeah, do it. And she said she's never seen a guilty person say that. And she has been, part of the problem is she's a woman who, she's a very confident woman. And Uh, she's prone to, she, I wouldn't say bragging, but she's very confident. She's kind of hyperbolic. She's herself. Yeah, and she likes to make, like bold statements like there is no other possible you know explanation for whatever so you know well when she makes statements like that it's after she's done a lot of research and and stuff she's not just talking out of her butt no and as we know women who say things like that are more well yeah uh criticize and she covers every like any possible objection to someone that somebody would have what she's saying about the evidence, she, she covered, she covered well, it. to the reenactment thing, they reenacted how the prosecution, the original prosecution of um, Stephen Avery, you know, he had a cut on his finger. So these little smears of blood in the car, they said, came from his finger. So they tried to do that. They put blood on a guy's finger in the same place and let it drip to see if when he was turning down the car and everything, it would drip there and... It didn't. Aside from the fact there were no fingerprints in the car. Nope. So either you have gloves on and you're not dripping blood or you don't have, you're going to leave, if you're not wiping up this blood you're dripping, you're also, you're not going to be able to wipe all your fingerprints from the car. That was a reenactment. Stephen had said that because of this cut, he had bled all over his sink and he wasn't the best housekeeper in the world. And he hadn't cleaned up the blood from his sink, but then the next day or whatever, and this was as her body was found and stuff, the next day or whatever, the cops were in his trailer or mobile home. He wasn't there. He he was out. He came home. He went to bed. He apparently doesn't brush his teeth or go to the bathroom or anything. He went to the bathroom outside. He didn't go into the bathroom till the next morning, and the sink was clean, and he could never figure out how that happened. He didn't clean it. He had left blood all over the sink. And he told many, many people, and we'll get to it later, why this, that the fact that this wasn't in the first season, but I think everybody just blew it off. And part of her reenactment is proving how these flakes of blood found on the carpet of the car, it's the same carpeting, Teresa Hallbacks, that you wouldn't find flakes of blood on a carpet. It would soak in. So another thing she did, so that was a reenactment with that kind of they took the sink out of his trailer. They did. They, the and tried sink. to and replicated blood dripping 
and then see, drying and then th- seeing to what see happens. how long it would and what kind of and if you would get and, the same kind of flakes and people might think that's a little over the top but you could also argue if they used it, if they just went to Home Depot and got a sink or a similar sink well his sink wasn't like that maybe his sink was worn out maybe the finish was worn yeah, off you making don't know. things so there were other reenactments. And whatever, you know, she can do whatever the hell she wants. She's got the money. She has, her experts are good. It's not yeah. fly-by-night people. She has the top she experts. Had, right, and another thing she did towards the end of season two had a theory based on what Stephen said happened that afternoon was that Teresa Halbach it was a freelance photographer, and one of her jobs was she took photos of cars people were selling. For Auto Trader. And she would go take photos of them. So she came to his house to take a photo of this van that actually his sister, who lived next door to him, was selling. And he said she never came into his house. She gave him a copy of Auto Trader magazine and a bill of sale. Then she drove away. He went into his house. He went out the back. He was going to go next door to get his nephew, Bobby Dassey who had been home a minute before when he went out. Bobby's car wasn't there, and he goes, oh, what happened to Bobby? And he went back inside. He saw her car way down. They had this long, long driveway, and it's Mm -hmm. flat, Wisconsin. And it was turning. And so another reenactment, when Zellner comes up with a theory that Bobby Dassey may have been involved, they drove the car out and drove a car like Bobby Dassey's. There was a dip in the driveway, and at the time, Stephen could see car turning he may not have been able to see bobby's so that was another reenactment they did one that we didn't talk about that the documentary did that you had brought up because i hadn't even thought of it was when they were talking about the appellate court later that they didn't have video of they had drawings yeah then they had audio playing they were like courtroom drawings right and they had audio playing of what the people were saying and they'd show the person the judge who was talking, they'd show their little drawn picture while they were talking, and I, that didn't bother it me didn't at all. It didn't even occur to me. Some people thought that was cheesy, that I've heard critique it. I didn't even think twice about it. I would rather... I guess I'm used to seeing courtroom... I mean, we're used to that, seeing that on the drawings. news. And I would it's rather not as have, common now, but... Right, and I would rather have the genuine audio yes. and see a photo, I would rather uh, see not a photo, too. but a drawing, a courtroom drawing of the well, judge. what else are they going to show? And the lo- lawyer. Right, then a cheesy reenactment. Yeah. And I think a lot of documentaries have reenactments because they're like, oh, what are we going to show people? People need visual, people need action. Well, a lot of times what they'll show is, yeah, some actors acting out whatever was supposed to be. Right. They can't, I mean, that's... Or, a, or even, like, blurry courtroom yeah, yeah. action. But I thought it was fine. It was fine to me, so too. So that goes back to the documentaries reenactments. So I wouldn't take any anything right, off take any points. Yeah. And as far as, as far as Kathleen Zellner's reenactments, I've heard some criticism of her and of them, but my feeling is she's going into as much detail as she can. It's not showboating. She's covering She's not, herself. it's not, right, it's not... For any kind of show at all, she wants to. She has the resources, and she wants to find out what happened. She, she really wants to find out what happened. Much she more doesn't just want to than the police. Did. I know it's not like she just wants to come up with a story that will satisfy somebody. Right. She wants to actually know what, what happened. happened. And she explains, and so and she and does I can make that identify clear. with that. Like yeah. she doesn't want to just say, "Oh, it could have been this. It could have been that." Once she has figured out how something could have happened. It's easier for her to figure out if her client could have done it or somebody else could have done it. And I think that makes a hell of a lot of sense. And why wouldn't you, if you had the resources, buy a RAV4 like Teresa's? And if it bothered some people, Teresa's blood was found on the back 
of the, like, she had been put in the back of the car. Mm -hmm. And she had been. Her blood and hair was found inside. But then there was blood splatter on the hatch opening. And so they wanted to see how would, the blood splatter didn't look right, how would you putting a body into the back of a car cause splatter instead of smears or something? And there was one thing that call it cringeworthy. I didn't think it was cringeworthy. I thought it was, they're trying to figure out how the blood spatter happened, given the context of what the police say was done with the body. There's no question that her blood and hair on the inside is real the way it was. But an interesting point brought up that you didn't really hear anyone talk about until episode two when they were talking about this is if the crime happened, like the police said, where Stephen Avery killed her in his trailer or later in his garage and burned her right there on his property, why would he be putting her into the back That's of the right. car? In her car was... And they, they so, had a dummy, a mannequin or a dummy, but it was weighted to be her same weight. Right. So they could do this, this And experiment. figure out how you would put this body that bothered some people. Yes. And I can understand maybe but why in a visceral sense how some people might be bothered. On the other hand, the problem is when you start giving into feelings... You don't solve you don't, crimes. Yeah, you don't get to the truth. You, you if something seems squeamish, you're, you back you, away from things that might help right, you get to the truth. Right. Yeah. I don't think the police or anyone ever explained how the splatter. I don't think there was much splatter. I don't think they explained uh, much um, evidence. They basically just said, "Oh, there's blood here. There's blood here." Right. So for that, we take away zero. I'm taking away zero. I'm, I'm taking away zero. And as far as the case goes, it was. I thought it was some good points for me. Oh yeah, I thought she did great. So narrative cliches is our second thing. Yeah. So narrative cliches in the documentary. Okay. I didn't really find any. I didn't either. Surprisingly. It wasn't like a lot of, like, we watch a lot of Dateline and Part of it was, a lot of the narrative cliches in Dateline and 48 Hours are done by the narrators. Yes, they are. And since there was no narration, we'll talk more about that later. They were just showing stuff. Found it it refreshingly free of a lot of that shit. And so that's a documentary. Okay. But for the case. But. So there's one issue, and there's no way... No good way to say this that some people are going to understand, but I'm going to come right and say this whole, oh, it's all about the victim. It's all about the victim. You can only talk about the victim. The victim has to be up front. The victim has to be first, blah, 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 makes it very difficult to talk about the justice system, how it works. I think that the prosecution, to a large extent, understands that. And especially in season two, the more it goes on, every single statement they make, this is for the Halbach family. Once things start getting up to the appellate court, well, we just feel bad for the Halbach family and the pain this is putting them through. And then there's one point about what's going to happen with something a habeas corpus appeal that was approved at a very high level of the federal court. A prosecutor says, well, we're going to ask the Hellback family what they think before we proceed. And while that's fine, I was given no indication anybody in the Hellback family is a constitutional attorney. I think the prosecutors understood more and more as this went on, more as outcry went out, more after the first season came out, that by constantly going back to any questioning of these people being convicted is dismissive of her and causes more pain to her family is a smokescreen yes. that a lot of people fall for. Well, they're using the, the emotional aspect to cover up the fact that the evidence isn't making any sense. Right. What evidence they have, and then a, some of the other evidence that they have is not real. 
And any time they're questioned about that, it's, yeah. it's kind of like my seven-year-old daughter, when I question her about something she's done, changing the subject. I mean, it's so obvious. The thing is, it's an emotional trigger. Yes. And, uh, it's emotional hot button. People say, oh my God, that's right. If I feel bad for the victim, I can't be concerned somebody was wrongly yeah. convicted. My feeling is I feel bad for the victim. I feel bad for her family. Yes. I I guess we're going to have to keep saying that. But that has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that anybody was wrongly convicted. And I wish people said it more. And I feel like people talk about victims' rights. The best thing you can do for a victim of a crime is to make sure the justice system works so that the person who committed the crime is the one who's convicted of it instead of just going after somebody who's an easy target or you don't like or you don't want to win a $36 million lawsuit, to not do that, to exploit the victim, to keep people from asking questions about your misconduct and your shoddy investigation does way more harm to the victim than somebody's conviction being overturned yeah. or somebody's habeas corpus petition being approved. And it's it actually disgusts me. And if anybody's feeling emotions over this constant harping on the victim, the emotion they should feel is disgust. I don't want to tell anybody how to feel, but you should be disgusted that the justice system is being exploited. Well, put it this way. way. The uh, first season of Making a Murderer, the first two episodes, I believe, maybe the first the first episode especially, focused on his first, Stephen's first conviction, and they showed when he got out of prison the victim that had identified him as her would-be rapist and assaulter came up and hugged him and asked for his forgiveness. And he was not bitter about it. No. He said, well, everyone makes mistakes. And he said, I don't blame her. I blame the man at yeah. watch. The county sheriff's department because they manipulated her. And she, her I'm and sure, her. felt a lot of hatred for him and wanted him to be in prison the rest of his life because she believed he did it. Right. And I want to say, too, at a point here... People said none of it was about her, none of it was about But in rewatching season one after hearing for two or three years, they didn't talk about her at all. The last episode of season one ended with this video she made, and I'm not sure her what the friend made was, it. I just read in one of the articles talking yeah, about her college how much made she it. loved people, yes. how loved she felt. It opened with her. Yes. It had a lot of her, and I have to say, every time her brother Mike, who is the family spokesman, got up to a microphone and talked about how much he hated and reviled Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey and how great Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, was and how justice would prevail. The documentarians show that. Maybe they didn't show every time, but they showed enough. His point of view, the family's point of view, was not stifled no, it wasn't. in either documentary. I don't blame the family forever how they feel. I mean, that's why I don't put families on a jury. My feeling is because Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, was such a manipulative, Ugh. lying, dishonest, disgusting. Um, condescending, supercilious, pompous ass. I'm sure he worked and worked and worked on the family. The gloating... And pleasure he got out of describing his yes, version and of we'll the crime. Talk about that right after Brendan Dassey gave his obviously false so-called confession, the the level of detail, really, He's really gross. horrific detail. That was gross. and I have to say, as a journalist of 33 years, who's as a reporter and an editor, been you know their coverage of a lot of murders and stuff. I have never seen a press conference like that. And that level, first of all, talk about poisoning the jury, but just the obvious 
pleasure. And tell me, how does that help the victim's family no, when you go on TV and go into gruesome, extreme detail and about the gross. about and the, the thing is, they had the rape even... and the. That hadn't even been... They there, and there was no evidence. They didn't even know if they could use that in court. He went out immediately and had that press conference. He went conference. out the day after... He poisoned the jury right. pool. And not only that, but, I mean, in my experience, police and prosecutors hold a lot of information yes, pretty close to their fest, Even if they think they have the people who did it. And granted, this was March 1st or 2nd. The murder was October 31st. They've been trying and trying and trying to get some evidence over four months. But to go out the day after wrangling a so-called confession out of a 16-year-old boy and going into that level of detail of He seemed of to really, enjoy it. It, it was gross. It was He's disgusting. about her rape, what was done to her, what was Which we didn't, her alleged rape, because there was, there was absolutely body, no evidence. Since we all that was left that of her later, body but. were charred bones. There's no evidence she was raped. I'm not saying she wasn't. And instead of people saying, what a disgusting human being that he's doing yeah. that, how disgusting for the justice system, how disgusting for her family, how disgusting for the presumption of innocence of the people who were arrested, people are like, yeah, wow. Now I know how, who did it. Now I know who did it and why. And then the TV news played it up and up and up. And I don't know what the print news did because they didn't show much of that in this part. But they did what I, as an editor, always had an issue with reporters doing and would edit out of stories, which is before somebody is convicted, no matter what details come out, you don't go around town asking random people if they thought the person did it and then putting it in the paper or on TV. Although I don't know if... It's the worst kind of report. But I don't know if They had people saying, oh, I bet he did it. Yeah, he could have done it. Was that... On TV. Are you sure it was on TV and it wasn't the documentarians? It was on TV. It was showing TV reports of that. I wasn't sure. And it was... Because, you know, it had the TV stuff, channel, whatever, you know, on... And people, oh, I think he did it. Yeah, it's you know, kind of thing. You you just don't do that. It's bullshit and it's lazy fucking reporting. It is lazy. And so so that is one narrative cliche the case had. The other cliche is Ken Kratz over and over again in Stephen Avery's trial. He has to tell the jury what good people these law enforcement officers are and how dare anybody accuse them of doing anything that was unethical. And he basically says that if you believe that Stephen Avery's innocent, you believe that the police killed Teresa Halbach, even though Jerry said that that was not that what they were saying. And that's not a cliche, but the cliche is just that how dare you accuse, accuse these, these fine, fine people. And the irony is... Some of these guys being accused are people who it was already pretty much proven had done it. In they had done it before. Lank, <laughs> the detective Lank, L- and yeah. Andy Colburn, uh, yeah. the, the sheriff, sheriff himself, the sheriff himself, that they had done it before, and it was on the record as them having done it. So we're living in some la la land where none of that matters. Although another thing they did was constantly imply. Even though DNA evidence have proved in other things that we haven't gone into, and I don't know how much we'll get into it, have proved without a doubt Stephen Avery was not guilty of that rape. They kept implying he was. Yes. The fact that he was arrested for murder, presumption of innocence, not convicted yet, but arrested for a murder, totally negated his wrongful conviction I know. ruling. Even if he had committed the murder, that didn't negate 
what yeah. happened before, you have to separate the two things. It yes. doesn't mean he's a good person. It means he still didn't do that he rape. He did not. He but did not kept, attempt to rape somebody. So yeah, that, he's not a violent rapist. And it, it won, because he he was proven not to have done that. Right. And so that is one of the biggest issues in the case is this manipulation of people's emotions mm-hmm. and of facts to these cliches happens of with a lot. good it cops. How happens. dare how dare you accuse cops? And we're going to talk about it more later, but everybody knows, I'm not saying all police plant evidence, a lot of them are good, some of them are bad, and these guys already had a reputation. Yeah, we'll talk more about that later. The next one is racial or gender obtuseness. The racial part doesn't... There are no black No, not at all. One thing I want to talk about, instead of racial, maybe class obtuseness? Right, but first let's talk about the documentary. The documentary itself... I don't think it had any because it was, again, just showing... Well, the one thing, and that we do have it in Missing Pieces, but I have it under here, too, is the jury. Who was on the jury... Yes, I would have liked to know more about that. But that we'll talk about that under missing pieces. As far as the actual case, there was a lot, tons, tons of it. And first of all, let's talk about the gender before we get to the. Okay. Okay. First of all, Ken Krantz accidentally on purpose refers to Teresa Halbach. And I don't know how many times, but they showed it once, is a little girl. And they said, oh, wait, I'm sorry, this young woman. She's Which, 25 years old. Right. Manipulative. The fact that we find out in the second. The end of the second one. That the female coroner, who whenever any indication of a body is found, including a bunch of burned bones, is supposed to be called, was completely blocked from doing her job on this case. And if the cops were doing their jobs right. She would have been over there. We did not find this out in the first season. I don't think, I don't think anyone, knew. anyone knew. I don't think the filmmakers knew to talk to her. Kathleen, I think, found her. But she was told if she showed up on the site, she could be arrested. Yes. And she's like, I'm your boss. Right. And she ended up quitting. Well, they also told her, well, no one from the county is going to be there. And then she found out later that there the were because of the lawsuit. Right. And she's like, well, okay. And that kind of made her and think, okay. she wasn't part of the lawsuit, unlike. She probably was like, okay, that's reasonable. Right. I feel like, and of course this is speculation because there's no evidence and nobody came out and said it. But she was treated differently because she was a woman. She was a guy. She probably would have been part of the old boys club. Well, I yes. And I, I know. Part of, and most of these were men. Most of these people in my, the prosecution. My feeling about men versus women. I think I'm going to make a lot of men pissed off. Well. But women are always, especially women in power. And she was, as she reminded them, she was above them in the hierarchy. She was their it boss. It didn't seem to matter. Say women in power are always considered buzzkills, and they're always messing our, you know, right. our plans up. They won't, they're not going to help out. I mean, there are corrupt women, I'm sure, but she did not seem that way, and she was pissed. Yes, and she did resign. Didn't let her testify. Also, the way Laura Nerider, Brendan's wrongful conviction attorney, was treated in the U.S. Appellate Court. Well, it was in the the panel, when she was in front of the panel, and then in the court, too. Right, by the male judge who constantly interrupted her. And she's a young woman. She's young-looking. She's kind of pixie-ish, girl-next-door-looking. So I think a lot of men would have a reaction that she's young and not... Want to take her seriously. Want to take her seriously. She was this one male judge. He was, like, just... 
lauding and fawning all over the male prosecutor, he kept interrupting her, mm-hmm. deriding what she was saying, yes. and it was audio, but you could tell she was getting agitated a yeah. little, which I'm sure fed right into his, Yeah, because uh, I think a lot of women have the experience that when they're in a situation like that with a male in authority who's acting like that, and you start getting agitated, and you know if your voice shakes and stuff, it, they... They just love it because they know that their power is... And you could see this happening. Yes. You could see it happening. And the filmmakers didn't mention it. They just showed it. They showed it. But I think most women who would watch it, maybe a lot of guys who would watch it wouldn't get what was going on, but I think most women who watch it would empathize. We've all been there. The other thing that they talk about, and I guess we'll talk about it here because there's a lot of things we need to talk about, so we tried to figure out which area to talk about certain things. So one of the things is Brendan, his mother says he's a slow learner. He apparently has a low IQ. You can tell that he has some cognitive slowness, and he may... Lack of affect um, when he talks, but he does have he does have emotions, right? And he, he he's kind of naive. Also, uh, he's he childlike in little, a lot of ways. Very little critical thinking no, power. Yeah. Like you can tell, his wheels are turning. He's probably very suggestive. He understands something's wrong. His wheels are turning. They're constantly demanding he articulate things yes. that you can tell. He doesn't have the tools. And I to think someone with, with enough empathy can see that. We can see that. And a lot of people watching it can see that. The people interrogating him either could not or would not see that, or they used or it they to their advantage. advantage. The judge on, on the, the, first of all, the panel, when, they, when she was in front of the three judge panel, he watched the interview. And I think he watched a longer one than most of the viewers have watched. And I think a lot of people watching that are very uncomfortable. Well, I was very uncomfortable and it's not watching that. that. Being, I didn't want to watch it if again. You, if you haven't seen his interview or watched it, he's brought in. He's a 16-year-old kid with these issues. The cops are, by turns, very obsequious to him but and also impatient. Cop, yeah. And when he doesn't give them the answer they want, they say, come on, we know you're lying, we know you're lying. And people should know about false confessions by yes. now and how that happens. And I still don't understand when you hear the phrase, people who didn't do something aren't going to confess. I don't understand how people can even say that. But you can tell they're Adam and Adam and Adam until he tells them what they want to hear because he wants to please them and he wants to go home and he has a project to at school at 129. That made me sad. They also keep urging him to tell the truth and when he does, they say it's not the truth. Yes. They also tell him they know what happened, kind of describe it. They put a lot of words into his yes. mouth, a lot of situations. If he gives the wrong answer, they nudge him along until he gives the right one. Like one of the guys says, okay, I'm finally com- going to come out and ask. Who shot her in the head? Yeah, who shot her in the head? So to him, it's not, most people say, I don't know, did somebody shoot her? I don't know. But to him, it's like, okay, somebody shot her. It must be Steven because it wasn't him. And they're like, we're going to tell your mom you're lying to us. What's your mom going to say when she finds out you're lying? And he wants to tell them what they want to hear. And the thing is, they wouldn't be saying shit like that to a grown person that they knew was abnormal. They wouldn't say it to you or me. They do. I mean, that's about your mom. Read tech, well, oh, no, they mom. wouldn't say that. No, the stuff like but about I've your heard, mom. Like on serial, like they've they've said it's like gangbanger. No, they do say it. But they do say but it, also, stuff like that, like, but not like I'm going to call your mom. The, the, right. Just the fact that they're saying that right and just shows very, that they know that he's briefly, not. Like the read technique isn't used a lot of other places, and like if you watch British either crime shows or actually true crime shows, their method of interrogation is tell us what happened. So Brendan would tell them what happened. And then they question what happened to see if there's inconsistencies, to see if there's details. 
So they're drawing out that instead of playing fucking mind games with people. And, and you can see in other cases, like, they tried to do it with Steven. Like, come on, if you just made a mistake, and I've seen this on a lot of these. Yeah. You can just tell us if you made a mistake. If you, well, we and, can see why you'd Steven, be upset. Steven and... says, no, I didn't make a mistake. Oh, so you did it on purpose. And he's like, no, I didn't. You know, but some people... Like, Brendan, if they don't have critical thinking skills, you're given this choice or this choice. Yeah. And you don't have the power to and say, they, wait a minute. Yeah, they neither. feel like they have to answer. They feel like he is a kind and of obedient boy. Right. He's not a... He, he, anyway. But the obtuseness that comes with this is that not only the cop, the but there's judges. one judge. Like a when couple his, of the judges. When they first try to get his confession throughout, the judge says, well, I don't think that he had any emotional issues that would make him not understand what was going on. And then that appellate judge says, well, they weren't yelling at him or anything. Right. So people don't understand coercion and how it works. You don't have to yell if you can get somebody to bow to your will. And I find way. it interesting that the women judges had much more understanding. They understood what was happening. Right. And they were... And they articulated it better. Yes. There was a lot of obtuseness in it, and the constant people talking about how dumb the poor kid was. Oh, that... Yeah, but we'll talk about that later. But the thing was, when Stephen Avery said he wasn't smart... It was used against Stephen yes, Avery. Like we talk about that later. Right, okay. And, enough. okay, another thing in the obtuseness, though, is the guy who ended up raping the woman, Stephen Greg Avery, was Allen. Greg Allen, yeah. was first convicted of raping, was a brutal serial rapist who was known to the cops. They were watching him. The day this woman was attacked in 1985, they didn't have the manpower to be watching yes. him. And that's the day he did the attack. And yet... Because of this whole thing with Stephen Avery, his cousin who was married to a deputy, and they were after him, and he had a minor criminal record. You know, people say that he had this major criminal record. He had a minor criminal record. They went after him, but I feel like the police interest was more in nailing somebody. It wasn't, they didn't really care what was happening to women because they had this horrible serial rapist out there that was allowed to kind of get away with his serial raping yeah, for years and did. years after. Well, and the other thing about uh, gender obtuseness was one of the things that came out, there were several women that worked in the DA's office that tried to tell the DA at the time, that sounds like this guy, and they were Greg totally Allen. blown yeah. off. Yes, and were we going to talk about class yeah, at the beginning I said that instead of race, we're going to talk about class. When he was first convicted of rape, the woman, and it was, this was made a big deal, she was from a uh-huh. fairly prominent family yeah. who was very involved in the community, in church, church going. The Averys owned a big car salvage yard. They were thought of as, you know, white trash. Yeah. They, um, they were kind of kept into their own little bubble. Yeah. There's no evidence that the family... Anybody at criminal records, it's kind of talked about in a very... Well, and we'll talk about that later, but too. But one of the obvious themes that runs through this, and we'll talk about it more in the storytelling part, so you're not told this, you can view it if you're, you know, if you can pay attention to what you're watching, that there's obvious class differences, as there always are, with how the Averys were treated and how Stephen Avery was regarded mm-hmm. and how other people were. And he's considered less than a person. And I'm sure, obviously, people who are in minority groups, black people and Native Americans and people, can fully understand how this could happen to him. Yes. You know, because they're treated the same way. Yeah. That is a big obtuseness. And one of the obtuseness parts of that isn't just 
that a lot of this happened to him because of his standing in the class system, but how people refuse to recognize it. Yes. How, how a lot of the people commenting, a lot of the people on the show talking, just assume certain things about this family because they're poor and uneducated like and own a salvage the yard. stupid investigator for Len Kaczynski. Which we'll talk about. Um, so why don't we move on to lack of good visuals. Yeah. So as far as the documentary goes, I think... They did a great job. And this was two women who were, I think, grad students. And when they heard he had been arrested for murder after being released on the wrongful conviction, they grabbed a camera and went to do a story. Wisconsin. So they weren't established no, filmmakers. No, and they, they do. A, it's a beautiful, they put They together. have a great sense of place and landscape. And I just want to talk about one moment, because I'm afraid I'll forget it otherwise, in the film in part season one, episode one, and I forgot about this till I watched it again, and I had the same reaction. It, it literally gave me chills. They had his civil rights lawyer who was doing the lawsuit talking. You know, when Steve filed this lawsuit, we warned him about a lot of things, how he'd be treated by people, how people would react. And he goes, one thing we didn't warn him about, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact words, were to watch out for the cops because they're going to arrest you for a murder you didn't commit and the whole episode was like a setup to this and as he says that it shows kind of in that hazy slow motion like the fumes coming up from the slow motion this long caravan of sheriff's cruisers going up the avery's driveway just in an artistic evocative sense what that guy was saying and then seeing especially because the first time you see it you don't really know what the happened. story? I knew nothing. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't but, even know about his exoneration or any of that. But even the second time after having watched yeah. the first season, uh, maybe two years ago, and then the, just having watched the second season, it's still such a powerful moment. It's amazing how much you can forget too. And I thought yeah. their their sense of place and and now I don't know if they had drone photography or if they might have done it later and added it. There's a lot of aerial footage. That was good, not only to show the geography of the area, but the junkyard and the vastness of how many fucking cars they mm-hmm. had there. It was a big, it's a big operation. Yeah. And that plays into the story that we'll talk about later because it's relevant to the story. Yeah. The other thing I liked is, you know, they talk to a lot of people and they have the, the typical, you're sitting there being interviewed, but they show them in situ a lot. Is that the right way? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was just thinking when you said that, I'm never quite sure what that means. And so they show the Averys a lot. They spent a lot of time with them because they were given access to them. And um, they spent two years, I guess, in Wisconsin. And that, that was another criticism that they spent a lot of time with the Averys. But we'll they probably would have spent a lot of time with the Hallbox, too, if, if, they, if they wanted them. But anyways, they would show people's faces when they weren't talking or when they were when someone else was talking, especially Dolores. They show her a lot. She's mm. Stephen's mother. But we were talking about they show a lot of press conferences. They were always at the press conferences. And they'll show the reporters, not necessarily the reporter that's asking the question, but the other reporters. And I liked that I part of too. it. I liked it. Because seeing what people, the looks on people's faces, the reaction, they have a really good way of right. unconventional. And as, as you know, and with some documentaries, like the Keepers with the tea oh, pouring yeah, yeah, and yeah. all that, sometimes I'm like, oh, why are they showing this level of detail? But they did that with this, but 
it, none of it felt gratuitous. No, I didn't. And the way things were filmed, like, there's one point where Dolores goes to the jail. Stephen's girlfriend, um, Jody. Jody, is being basically harassed by the pr- police. And Doris goes to the jail after she's been in for seven months for yeah. DWI. Jody has, yeah. To, to get her out. And Dolores <laughs> is trying to get in. She's talking on the intercom. But there's not this close-up of her. No. It's back, so you can see it's dark out. There's this little light yeah. shining out the door. And so it kind of shows this isolating, you know, oh, there's a lot of that where the tone helps you feel like the isolation they feel and how well done that is. Like, they know when to take a long view yeah. and when to take a short view. And they also do a good job of, they had a lot of audio, like all Stephen yes, and Brendan's yes. phone calls were recorded and they had access to all that. And instead of Which doing... Which is great. Like, and some documentaries would want to show reenactments or something. Oh, yeah. But they do a good job of just showing background and landscape well, the audio is plain. Yes. It works really well. The graphics. But especially season two, they have graphics that are like a little chart. It's a very complicated story, especially season two of Making a Murder, because there's Stephen's storyline and his case and Brendan's going along parallel to each other. And the graphics really help the viewer figure out or keep in Keep track of what the hell's and going on. And then they on. go back to update it. Like, they'll yes. show, like Catherine Zellner has three different tracks she's going on. And they go back, and so something will be added to one, and it'll go zoom, and it goes up. Or as it goes through, it does a great job of showing the complicated hierarchy of the judicial system. Yes. And as something happens, it will say, like, denied. It'll show yes. the judges. And it's very nicely done. It helped me. Yes. And also the satellite images and the map, the yes. maps of the area showing where things were, where her bones were found, where the RAV4 was parked, where, where the fire pit was, Stephen's house, all that stuff. Because there isn't a narrator telling, and we'll talk about this a little yeah. later, but there isn't a narrator telling you where these things, and even if there was, you need some kind of context, so it was very helpful. Right. And they also do a good job of using newspaper headlines and that type of thing. Also TV clips, both ones that help enhance the story, but also ones that help show the mood in yes. the feeding frenzy, and they know when to use them and when to not use them. Yeah. I don't really feel like there's anything to say about the case itself in this category. No, but some of what we were talking about kind of goes into our next... Missing pieces. Missing pieces. pieces. So one of the missing pieces... Documentary-wise. Documentary-wise, because there's no narrator, there are several times when you're confused because they're showing someone having a conversation, like you talked about that one where they said Tom and Mark told Brent... Right, and there are a lot of Toms, a lot of Marks, and a lot of Steves. It would be helpful if If they would just... If there's a line that said, Law enforcement officers. A little bit time, more. I mean, you have to really pay attention. And even uh, if you aren't paying attention, like Brendan's mother, Barb, was saying, Tom and Mark told Scott, who's her husband now, to tell Scott to convince Brendan to take the plea. And I'm like, which Tom and Mark? Because yeah. at this point, Brendan had a lawyer named Mark. Yes. I'm trying to remember who Tom is. So if there are just some words came up on the screen, saying, Detective Tom, yes. Fastman, Mark, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, or, that would help me because I'm like, okay, who are, there's like three or four marks. Yeah, and he there did have that. And I'm like, his Steve's lawyer, Tom, is telling, yeah. Right. So his lawyer was telling Scott to tell him to take the plea. And when you're trying to think that, then you're losing yes, what they're talking get about. So that's one of the things. As we talked about before, we would have, li- I would have liked to know more about the jury makeup because, yes. you know, Stephen oh, yeah. Avery was ultimately convicted and they had one sentence from a TV thing where the jury, you know, is 
from 23 to 80 years old and blah, yes. blah, 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 blah. What I want to know is what's the racial makeup? Yes. It's a very white county. And what's the gender makeup? What's the gender makeup? Yeah. What's the class makeup? Like, what do people do what's for a living? What's their occupation, yeah. If they would have had the lawyers break down, does yeah, a great job of it. Talk Serial about does it. Yes. talk about the lawyers talking about who they yes. wanted on the jury and who they didn't. Yes. A lot of goes into the staircase that. on that. And that helps you understand better. Why, maybe why they came to the conclusion. Right. The other thing that I wanted to know a lot more about, because we were confused watching, at least I was, about Barb and Scott. Barb, Stephen's sister, who's Brendan's mom. She, at the very beginning, when the murder happens, she's not married to Scott. He, they don't live together. But by the time Stephen's on trial, he's identified as her husband. She does have his last name. And I want to know, I wanted to know... And they did talk a lot to Barb, so she probably and to Anne Scott dating. even in, in the second. And season. you know they were dating because at one point Brendan says that when he's talking about what really happened that day, that his mom was going to go with Scott, Scott to, to see the, his mother yes, in the that's hospital. Right. Yes, yes. So they were dating. When did they get married? I I don't know. I just needed. I just wanted more information about about their relationship because he's one of the people that I think might have something to do with the murder. And I just want to know, did he marry her? So to kind of protect himself, he'd be kind of in the house, especially if her son Bobby had something to do with it too. Right. And they were complicit. You know, I know that it's a long... And they had 700 for the first season. They had 700 hours of film. So I understand they had to leave stuff out. And that brings us other missing pieces that I didn't have an issue with. That people, since that first season was on, people have complained about stuff that wasn't brought up at trial. Or stuff that was brought up at trial that wasn't in the documentary. And the documentary points out, documentarium points out, well, if we didn't show it for the prosecution. We also didn't have the defense comment yet. So it's basically a wash. But one of the things was the prosecution brought up, Stephen apparently had made phone calls where his ID was blocked to, and apparently this was brought up at his trial, to Teresa Hallbach before she came over to take the photos. It's not clear if she got, if her phone showed she got blocked phone calls or if they know Stephen made them, and the documentarians didn't bring it up at all. The things I've read about it aren't clear about it. Well, it's Ken Kratz. It's Ken Kratz, and he's a proven liar and twister of information. But my feeling is there's other stuff that shows that phone calls in that area get dropped a lot. There was some references to, and maybe it was in the second season, but I'm not sure, of him asking specifically, and this was in the prosecutors who brought this up, asking specifically for Teresa to come. She was a freelance photographer. He had dealt with her before. So I don't see that as being an issue. I've had people as a reporter, people say, oh, can I call you next time I have blah, blah, blah. And depending on the situation, I'll say, sure, you can call me or you can ask for me. Or if it's something else, you know, they're just going to give you whoever is going to do it. And also that he gave his sister's number or, or name he gave her or name. Yeah. But it was her van. Yeah. So I can see a scenario where his sister was like, hey, can you get this an auto trader? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know. But gives her name because Well, she's even one the of the family members said, oh, yeah, he told me that gal from auto trader was coming right. over. So, you know. So that's been brought up as a big missing piece. And I would like to know more about it. Yeah. 
but I don't think it's a missing piece. Another thing that Ken Kratz is now bringing up in 2018 that wasn't brought to trial is that supposedly, and this is another shameless case of him putting stuff out there that doesn't seem to have a lot of substance, that supposedly when Stephen Avery was in prison the first time, he talked about um, raping and torturing women and tying them up, and that he had supposedly drawn photos of it, although Kratz, in a thing I just read, said he doesn't really know the existence of these photos. And apparently, if this information came from anybody, it came from jailhouse snitches. Yes. And it was never used. And people keep bringing that up, saying, okay, it shows Stephen Avery was but these, guilty, but it wasn't even brought up at trial. They probably didn't bother because they're two, they're jailhouse snitches. Right. They're making it up. I don't consider that a missing piece. And I the only reason I'm even talking about piece. it is because people keep bringing it up. Yes. And there's somebody else, Bobby Dassey, Brendan's older brother, who had thousands of things on the family computer that involved torturing yes. women horrifically and raping them and porn, tying them up. Yes, and it's funny that Kratz would bring this up. And that was a Brady violation because the police had Right, it. but he knew all about Bobby Dassey and his stuff. It was a Brady violation because he never told anyone, and Bobby was one of his star witnesses. Yes. You know, the, the other thing that um, I had a question about, and this was trial-wise, but it wasn't really talked about or mentioned, is that Barb never testified, even though she kind of was a witness as to, for the timeline and Barb purposes. Barb is Brendan's mother. Yeah, Brendan's mother, Barb. And I wonder why she wasn't yeah, called. Yeah, and I can, on my speculation on that, and it's just speculation, is two things. One it was clear his first lawyer, Len Kaczynski, oh, yeah, and true. even his other lawyers never seemed to talk to her much. No. I don't think people respected her much. No. So, A, they didn't talk to her, so they may not even know. Like, the cop said they offered to have her sit with Brendan when in his confession, and she declined. And she's, like, later outside smoking a cigarette, talking to somebody else and saying, no, that never happened. They wouldn't let me go yeah. in. But it's not clear if she told anybody that. Yeah, but I also I think she would have been, they thought she would have been bad on the stand. Because we may- see several instances of her just blowing up. and. Yeah, that's true. Which that's I don't true. blame her because she's... So for the documentary, we're done with missing pieces. Yeah, I take off a point because of Me too. the issues. And I think you mentioned, too, one of the things that concerned you was at the end of season two. You know, Laura Nyrider's whole career had been built on Bobby Dassey's yeah, and confession. Yeah, and I'd like to know at least a reaction. They didn't really talk to them after, and like you said, maybe it ended. It was too quick. It was too quick. And also, what I feel are his since the U.S. Supreme Court went to take at the end of the line. I guess. How does he? Can somebody talk about how he would ever get out of prison? And I don't think he ever will because there's no evidence. Right. It's not like DNA is going to come up to exonerate him. And they've already said his confession's fine. I think. But I would like to know, for instance, if Stephen Avery's conviction gets thrown out. Does that get Brendan's? But it seems like the justice system is so bogged up and complicated that even if the guy who you supposedly confessed did it, is his conviction's overturned, yours may not be. Uh, that's crazy. The other thing is the prosecution and cops bring up several times what a crime family the Averys are and Stephen's criminal record. If that's true... I would have liked to have seen or if it's not that, true. and if yeah. it's not true, I would have liked to have that spoken to. I'd like to. to have that spoken to. I'd like to know, like, all they need is one of their little Right, saying nobody made her family's ever been. Or right. Stephen had an uncle that was convicted of, you know, car theft or right. something, or blah, blah, blah. You know, something. The other thing that they, I don't know if this happened in trial, because they didn't show the whole trial, but did the defense ever ask why Stephen never smushed the car? 
I know. <laughs> I mean, I know. The first thing you would think about. Right. He has and, the he has the machine there to do it. And another thing missing in the first season that Kathleen Zellner talks about quite a bit, and maybe the lawyers mentioned this, but it certainly wasn't emphasized enough that. Avery's lawyers in his trial, Dean and Jerry, were not allowed to introduce alternative suspects, which is a pretty standard defense thing. And what you're saying to the jury, you're not accusing somebody else so much as saying to the jury, is introducing reasonable doubt. There's as much of a chance that somebody else did did it it as And there are certainly, when you watch season two, there are certainly... And to me, it was a big missing piece for the documentarians not to at least and maybe they did and I missed it have just little things saying they were not allowed to do this and it's possible Jerry or Dean talked about it a little but it they needed did, to be but not it wasn't stressed I it needed to be stressed yeah. more because it was a huge it handcuffed them in their trial and it need needed to be talked about more okay not, so because this is we're missing out on our crime Bake right, we're gonna activities. do something I don't know that we've ever done before. We've never split it into two parts before, but I think we're going to. But one of the reasons we haven't is because lots of times we have our recommendations at the end, and we don't want to make them separate podcasts. Yeah. But since this is a full, so this was part one. Our next episode, which will be up very soon, yeah. probably not as long as it takes for our normal part two. We'll talk about the next five elements of our negative Nellie's watching. In the meantime, if you haven't watched Making a Murderer seasons one and two, maybe you could you watch it. You should watch them. And then you can either yell at your iPod or your car dashboard or wherever you listen to our podcast because you disagree with us. Or you can yell in agreement as yeah. you're listening. And now we have to get back to Crime Bake. And I just want to say for the first, this is my 11th one, Crime Bake. I and first my came, one. Yeah, I first came when I was trying to figure out how to get my first book written and what I should do about it. I love coming here. And this is the first year I've been on a panel. Yes, and she gets to sell her books. And because I'm on a panel, they're selling my books. And they're right next to Walter Mosley's books because he's here. He's yeah, the guest of honor. He's the guest of honor. It's cool because the books on the big, long book selling table are in alphabetical order. So my last name is next to Walter Mosley's last name. So I'm hoping people will, like, accidentally pick up one of mine. Or maybe they'll just see the cover when they're looking at his, and they'll be like, those look interesting. Yeah, they look good. Oh, I wonder what they're about. There's cold, hard news. No news is bad news. No news is bad news isn't there, because they can only sell two titles. So my first book, Cold... bullshit. Well, that's a small... You know, there's not enough room on the table for everyone. I know, I know. Cold, hard news is the first one. So I got to choose which two. And then Bad News Travels Fast, which just came out, the third one. So those two are That's there. That's good. You don't have to read them in order. No, to appreciate them. And thank you for thank listening. Thank you for listening. And the, the negative Nelly watching things we'll talk about next time are inaccuracies and anachronisms. Storytelling. Freshness. Repetition. And... Beating, beating the, the drum. drum, our favorite Ooh, thing. they love Ooh, to beat the drum. We love to beat the drum. So until then, okay. and thanks for listening. Thank and you. Are you happy this is short? Yeah, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Look how late it is. I don't think there's no way we're going to get to the end of this.